Welcome to Officer Wellness with Brian Manley, a candid and informative discussion between retired police chief Brian Manley and law enforcement leaders about the many aspects of officer wellness. We hope you enjoy this episode and find it informative. Officer Wellness is powered by Off-Duty Management. Well, good morning, um, and uh, thank you very much for uh, joining me on the podcast. Uh, for the audience this morning, we have Dustin Scalinger. Uh, I'm going to let Dustin uh, give a much better introduction of himself here in a moment, but uh, I always appreciate having somebody on the podcast who shares a passion for officer health and wellness, and I know with uh, your service to our country, both in the United States Marines and serving a police function for them. And then after uh, leaving out of the Marines, heading over to the Dallas Police Department, where I know you did some work uh, in a civilian capacity, but definitely aligned with officer health and wellness. And uh, most recently and currently, uh, really serving as running the Texas Peer Support Network, which is kind of a unique program uh, for us here in Texas that was just kicked off by the legislature last year. I I look forward to having a great conversation about uh, the program, about your experience, and hopefully some insight for others of how they can uh, implement a similar program uh, in their states. But uh, by way of introduction, if you don't mind, Dustin, please uh, fill that out a little bit more. Tell me a little bit more about your your background and what's led you to uh, where you're at today. Well, th- thanks for having me, Brian. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here. Um, as mentioned, uh, my name is Dustin Skellinger. I was a United States Marine for 20 years. I served in uh, the capacity as a military policeman. Um, served all over the world, many deployments, uh, made a lot of friends, and um, was very privileged to have the opportunity to be in the military police field specifically. Uh, at one point, I was in charge of running the the SRT or the the SWAT team for Camp Pendleton, California, and while there. Um, I had two Marines that got out of the Marine Corps and went on to get civilian jobs. Um, <clears throat> after they got out, uh, one got into law enforcement and one was a dispatcher for 911. And within six months of each other, um, the two of them decided to take their own lives. Uh, that that impacted me so much so that I kind of dedicated a lot of my time and effort into trying to help people that were struggling with PTSD and other issues. Um, so I continued to serve on active duty. I served in a c- capacity where I was able to be kind of a peer and to help mentor and coach others that were struggling um, through similar situations that those two went through. Um, that was kind of a turning point for me, though. Um, when I retired from the Marine Corps, I got a job working in the Dallas Police Department as a project manager. Uh, I loved working for DPD. Um, I got to see a lot of the frustrations and the things that they go through on a daily basis and understand from an internal perspective um, the stressors that they go through. Um, I, I don't claim to have been a police officer. I don't claim to, you know, I was a military policeman, very similar, but not the same. So I can relate when they talk about you know, working in a shift at two o'clock in the morning or having to deal with a barricaded suspect or a lot of the similarities are there, but I'm not, I'm not going to sit and try and claim that, that I wore, you know, a badge, um, in the, the traditional law enforcement sense. Um, but I did get a chance to see a lot of the frustrations that they go through and what they deal with on a daily basis. So I was working on a project and I came across, um, at the time, the executive director for the Caruth Police Institute 
and um, her, her name is BJ Wagner. And BJ said, you know, Dustin, I, getting to know you and working with you on another project, we worked on um, um, <clears throat> a couple of other things together. And she basically said, I want, I want you to apply for this position. I think it's something you'd be interested in. And I went through the hiring process, and here I am today. So I'm going to go back a little bit, because first of all, I'm going to challenge you a little bit. I know that you're separating yourself a little bit from the law enforcement listeners we may have claiming that your military law enforcement experience doesn't qualify. And I'd say that I think it does, although it was a different environment. It's still policing. And so um, I think what you have to share with us today is extremely relevant because PTSD, unfortunately, is so prevalent in policing as it is in the military. And you shared a very personal experience, obviously, losing two people that were very close to you very soon after them leaving the military. And and uh, you've taken that, that, uh, that tremendous loss, that tragedy, and you've managed to turn that into something positive for you and use that as your driving force as you can continue to, to work alongside law enforcement agencies in, in trying to ensure that this doesn't happen to, uh, to current law enforcement officers because as you and I both realize this is a, uh, this is a tremendous uh, threat to those that serve. I think uh, when we spoke the other day, you gave me a statistic that I believe it was uh, the upper 90% of uh, first responder suicides are those serving in the law enforcement capacity, although it does you know, impact our brothers and sisters in uh, in fire and EMS as well, but that uh, the the law enforcement profession seems to to bear the brunt of it. Well, and I've heard so many times too. Um, a lot of those other agencies have some coping mechanisms kind of built into them. I mean, you look at uh, a fire department; they go back to the firehouse and they're able to kind of talk to one another about what happened and kind of decompress a little bit. Well, a police officer is going to get in their patrol vehicle. And they're going to be alone trying to process what they just dealt with instead of in a kind of a group environment. And that, along with a lot of other contributing factors, leads to them being so high. And it's 98%, last three years, 98% of first responder suicides were police officers. So it's, I mean, it's absolutely, we're in, we're in a bad spot. We really, really sure. are. Sure. I mean, the number says it all, right? And, and and you're exactly right that the ability to decompress, to talk with those that were on that call with you really doesn't exist for law enforcement because even on the best day on a well-staffed agency, that officer is going to be expected to be back in service and ready to go to the next call. And we know that today with agencies being as short-staffed as they are, um, any time that maybe an officer would have had in the past pretty much is non-existent now just because the demands are such that they are going to be sent to that next call and and police administrators are going to just you know accept, expect them to be okay and just roll into that next call and take care of business and so I think that um, the way that we we're at least talking about this today much more so than I think uh, we have in decades past shows that there is a greater understanding today of the impacts of this on the profession and a greater willingness for police departments to really put energy and effort towards uh, a health and wellness program that meets the needs of the agency. Um, so I'm going to ask you some, some questions here just because you, you really, having experience in both worlds, you know, military and law enforcement, where, where this is so prevalent, uh, what do you see as maybe similarities and then also as differences 
in the way that uh, PTSD impacts those that serve in, uh, in each of those organizations? Well, Brian, I'll, I'll be honest with you. Um, I'll start out by saying and, and just being honest and open. Um, I dealt with PTSD myself. Uh, I, if it weren't for peers, I wouldn't be sitting here today. Um, I had some very, very close friends. Um, there's a currently an officer, um, Christopher Posada, who helped me keep my head on straight. Um, without peers, I wouldn't be here today. So um, peers are what connects us to the real world. Um, you've got clinicians, and that's where the healing takes place, right? But those peers is kind of the bridge to seeing the clinician. So a peer is the first person you talk to, and they should be the last person you talk to in your healing process, right? They're going to be along the ride through all of it, ups, downs, you know, lefts, rights, whatever that looks like. Those individuals are going to be there supporting you. Um, so in my journey with PTSD, I learned quite a bit about myself and then seeing others go through it. Um, I got a kind of an interesting perspective because I was able to see, like you mentioned, um, what law enforcement goes through specifically, um, and that endless grading, um, I, I kind of look at it like, uh, the pressure of a, a glacier very, it may not be fast. It may be slow moving, but it's going to compound and it's going to build over time. That stress is going to continue to affect day in and day out. Even on your days off, you feel it, right? Um, whereas the military's not always, but in a lot of cases, it's it's a whole lot of pressure at one time, and then nothing. And you're so there's no like work up to it and work down from it. It's kind of um, really fast, really hard. It's there, and then you have to cope with it after the fact. So there are some contrasts in in the way it happens, but the way that it's treated is very similar. Um, to, to decompress somebody it it really is a lot of similarities in the way that it's handled um, and they're finding a lot of close ties in the way that um, the way that they're able to treat this stuff sure and you mentioned earlier that was so important for you on uh, on your road to recovery and and, and, and getting back in the, the 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 healthy state you are that the peers were so important to you that you wouldn't have made it without your peers and you know oftentimes when we talk about you know the importance of peer support programs and all of that they're you know i think everybody recognizes it but people attempt to go about it very differently uh, sometimes agencies have resources to you know, build their own program in-house, and sometimes they don't. But uh, for you, when we talk about a peer support program, what in your experience are just some of those critical components that a peer support program must have? Well, I think it really starts with uh, a supportive chain of command and then a key person that really cares. True, If you can find that person that really cares about furthering a, a peer support program and then a supportive chain of command, those two things are absolutely essential. Um, it is nice to have clinician support, right? You look at a lot of the bigger agencies in the state of Texas, and a lot of them have the, the budget to be able to, to hire on a clinician to be able to help support them. But a lot of the smaller agencies aren't going to have that kind of budget. So the most important thing is somebody, that, and you know, forgive me, somebody that gives a damn, right? Somebody that cares. Sure. Um, sure. And then a chain of command that's that's at least supportive enough to let the program, you know, grow and, and foster. Uh, we're still combating a lot of the the stigma attached to what is it, you know, suck it up, you'll be fine, you don't need any help. We're still battling that today. 
Um, so sometimes even even within the leadership in a chain of command, that's something that we're still kind of battling. Um, mm-hmm. So just a chain of command that's willing to support the idea of this could be beneficial to the officers. Because, I mean, if I'm, if I'm sitting in a leadership position, I have to look at it. If, it. if this program saves even one officer, no matter how much work it takes to get there, it's worth it. So I think that the most important thing is uh, somebody that can be kind of a representative to push the, the program and then a supportive chain of command. You know, and this is one of those things where it's so hard to know just how successful you are because you never know exactly what you prevented. And, uh, you know, I've said this before on the podcast with other guests that, you know, in my former agency, we really did expand on our health and wellness program. And I had, um, you know, a lead on that for me. For me, it was my uh, my senior chaplain who read my who uh, led my health and wellness program. And I've always I used the word bittersweet because it was always bittersweet when he would call me and say, hey, chief, we saved another one. And, you know, it was the sweet side of it was because, you know, what, we just saved an officer, whether we saved their life or saved their career. We had an officer that, you know, was about to, you know, engage in unhealthy or, or maybe even detrimental uh, activities to their own health and well-being. But then it was bitter because it was another officer that was that close. And it was another example of, you know, of the pressures and demands of this job and what they do to the individuals. And so um, the, the one thing that I never got to know, though, is exactly what I'm sure you would say if I asked you. And that was who was that officer? Because if I got to know who they were, then the system doesn't work. Because you and I have talked before about the importance of anonymity within a system so that officers trust that they can use those resources without any repercussions to their career or future opportunities within their career. So, you know, we're going to get into the Texas Peer Network here in just a little bit, and I really want you to expand on that. But uh, before we get into that, just, you know, from your experience, especially as as someone who, you know, uh, and I appreciate you being you know, so open to this and, and talking about your own uh, journey today, but just someone who, who, who went through this, the importance of that to someone who, who needs help and is willing to get that help of, of the, the anonymity and, and the trust that that can build. Well, so the realistic issues that we're facing is, again, speaking from personal experience, you don't want your chain of command involved because there's a risk that you could lose your job, you could lose your rank, you could lose your ability to function. And that snowballs into how am I going to feed my family? How am I going to take care of the things I need to take care of? So that's a really, it's a big deal. And that's one of the biggest parts of the stigma that we battle is um, ensuring that we are developing trust with the officers of the state of Texas and ensuring that they understand that this is a safe place to go to, that... um, we're going to protect who they are. In fact, in, in most cases, we're not going to know who they are. Um, at, at my level, we don't track we don't track um, anybody at an individual level. The only thing we track is connections that are made. Um, how often is a is does is the system utilized to connect one person to a peer? That's that's really all we're we're really trying to keep track of. So, the the trust for me is probably the biggest part of what we owe the the police officers of the state where they feel safe coming to the Texas Peer Network um, and knowing that we're not, we don't fall under any chain of command. We're not part of their chain of command. Um, and I would hope that any any organization that wants to start a localized peer network, that's another thing that you have to focus on is that anonymity of the officer. You have to protect who they are 
so that they will trust the system and allow it to help them. Sure. So let, let's get into this. So, uh, you know, Texas being one of the uh, uh, the largest geographical states, I, 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 we could drive for eight hours and still be in the same state here, right? Whereas in other parts of the country, you're four states over already. So huge place, thousands of police departments, all different resource availability levels within those departments. As you mentioned, the larger agencies uh, typically will have the ability to build their own network to assign resources to it. I had a full-time team at Austin um, actually assigned officers at each substation. Their full-time job was peer support, getting to know the officers in that station house so that they were comfortable coming to them if they needed that help, but realizing that so many of the smaller agencies, especially in all the rural areas around our, our great state, don't have that resource and, and really aren't necessarily as close to the resource as we'd like them to be. So recognizing all of this, recognizing, you know, the, the nature of, of uh, you know, suicide within the profession and all of that, the Texas State Legislature, I believe it was through Senate Bill 64 last year, um, passed legislation that created the Texas Peer Network. And so... Um, Tell, tell you know, the listeners just a little bit about what is the Texas Peer Network? What, you know, what did, what did it put in place and, and how are we doing so far? And then we'll, we'll keep going with that. Yeah, so the, the Texas Law Enforcement Peer Network is an organization. We fall under uh, the Carruth Police Institute. Um, and the Carruth Police Institute is an organization that was formed with uh, a partnership between the Carruth family the University of North Texas um, Dallas location, uh, and at the time, Dallas Police Department as well. So these entities got together and formed the Carruth Police Institute with the intent of um, better training and supporting police officers utilizing education. Um, so um, when the bill was approved, CPI then took that um, legislation and created the Texas Law Enforcement Peer Network. And the network is built up of individuals that um, support from, so that you've got myself at the state level and you've got regional directors. So they're broken down by regions based off of uh, TCOL. And then finally, it's made up of the peers. It's all volunteers. So this is a, this is a not-for-profit organization. It's a state-funded um, when we come in and we offer assistance to departments and to individuals, it's at no cost to the state. Or, I mean, I'm sorry, at, at no cost to the departments themselves. Um, the, um, the structure internally, um, we travel around and we are teaching right now the um, state-approved 6400 class, which is... Essentially, so, uh, the foundation of training for peers, um, giving them the opportunity to kind of learn what it takes to be a peer, the things that are involved in it, because we don't want peers that are out there helping, they're going to cause more harm than help. Um, so they're already police officers in the state, and they're just seeking to have the opportunity to help others. So those are the, the volunteers that we have. Um, we have a, an application that allows any officer in the state to download that application. And then once it's downloaded, they have the, the ability with the touch of a button to reach out and ask for help. Those people that they're asking for help to are the peers that have been trained already. 
additionally, we've got resources from all over the state, and those resources are growing that the app can link them directly to, whether it's websites, phone numbers, emails, of additional resources that are there to help the officers. Um, this has been quite the undertaking to set up in a, in a state this size. Um, but we've had a lot of help, and there's, there's a lot of agencies and departments out there that want to see this and want to help this to grow. So we've done a, quite a bit of traveling over the last few months, getting this thing put together and up and running. Um, and we're pretty proud of what we're able to do at this point and look forward to continuing to grow. Um, we're not there yet. You know, uh, there's always room for improvement and we would re really like to, um, try to get to every police officer in the state and get them to at least download the app and know that when things go bad or if things go bad, they have the ability to reach out and have somebody to talk to. You've been listening to officer wellness with Brian Manley powered by off duty management. Off-Duty Management provides off-duty job administrative services and comprehensive liability insurance to officers and agencies at no cost. For more information on Off-Duty Management, visit offdutymanagement.com.